Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you. Something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering. But you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. I read recently of an art form that I had not heard of. It's a form of Japanese art called kintsuji, where the artist makes pottery, and after making that pottery, breaks it. But before you think this is some strange modern art form, The breaking is a part of the art and a part of the process. Because the artist then takes those pieces that are now broken and puts them back together. But he or she does not use adhesive that can't be seen, but rather the artist uses gold so that the cracks and pieces are held together with this gold. And so as a result, those Cracks are not hidden like we might try to do if we break a plate and might try to put a little bit of super glue on there so that no one sees. Rather, these cracks are accented. They're highlighted. And the result is a beautiful piece of art. And the broken art now becomes more valuable than when it was whole. This is a beautiful visual, I think, of what the Lord does in us through suffering, through the fall and through the curse and sometimes through our own sin and sinfulness, we experience trials and tribulations, which no doubt leave a mark, sometimes seemingly pieces of what we once were. But this isn't by accident or by coincidence. It's not because God couldn't prevent it, because he could. But he ultimately uses trials and tribulations and, yes, even suffering in our life. Not ultimately to harm us or to punish us, but to put us back together. Like that artist would. As a result, we are different, but even better 
than before. And what holds us together, like that gold in the pottery, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those flaws that are now highlighted are highlighted to the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says something very similar to this in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Therefore we are afflicted in every way but we uh, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul says there that we are like jars of clay. Those jars in the first century were commonplace. And they could contain great treasures, depending on what was on the inside. And we are such... Just common jars of no value. But what is of value is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He inside us radiating in the midst of affliction and persecution is of great value, is a treasure. And that makes all the difference. And so as this morning we come back to 1 Peter chapter 4, Verses 12 through 19, we read the same. Peter is giving hope to his readers in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their afflictions, and he is telling them what is happening to them is not strange. They should expect it, just like a school-aged child should expect tests, or a fireman should expect fires, or a doctor patients. So the Christian should expect suffering. Why? Well, that is the question, isn't it? And we've been looking at ten truths of suffering from this passage. Ten bedrock stones that you should know and no doubt do know. But these are truths that must gird you up, must uphold you, must support you in those times when you go through such trials and afflictions. Last week we looked at the first five, and this week we return to the next five. And so as we begin, let me give you the first five from last week as a way of reminder, if you were here or if you weren't, so that you may have them. And they all begin with trials are. First is trials are from a loving God. Notice that Peter begins this passage with saying, beloved, that this belovedness does not change in the midst of our sufferings. We never lose that designation, do we not? In many ways, that is only heightened in times of struggle and suffering. Just as you would speak words of endearment to your child or grandchild when they hurt themselves or they are crying, you speak words of love to them, so the Lord speaks His word of loveliness, belovedness, in the midst of trials. We are the beloved in Christ. Second, trials are purposeful. 
If they're from God, then they have purpose. And that's why Peter says we should not be surprised by them. And that they are not strange because this is part of God's plan for us. Third, trials are painful and difficult. They're not enjoyable. We do not look for them. We do not pray for them. Peter says that they are fiery trials. We are afflicted. We mourn. We weep. And we should as we go through them. That is a part of being human. But fourth, trials are to test us. They test the genuineness of our faith. Not to show how sufficient we are, but how sufficient Christ is. Supporting us. Upholding us. In the midst of them. And fifth, trials are to conform us to Christ. Even as Peter says here, we share in Christ's sufferings. We bear the marks of Christ, says Paul. Not as to atone or make up insufficiency in Christ's suffering, but so that through our suffering we may come to know the sufferings of Christ even more intimately and value our salvation in Christ even that much more and through it be made like Christ. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Well, now for the rest of the story, as they say. Six, trials are nothing to be ashamed of. Our culture admires the strong, the powerful, the bold, the rich, the winning athlete, the outspoken politician, the successful CEO. Our world does not value the weak, the downtrodden, the despised. And sadly, there is a form of Christianity that proclaims this type of theology, the victorious Christian life, the triumphant life, that you must experience triumph in your life, in all areas of your life, if you are to experience the blessings of God. And any suffering, any pain, well, that is nothing to do with God and therefore must be something wrong with you or your life. We're to only experience health and wealth and prosperity. And that's what becomes the gospel. That is not the gospel. That is another gospel altogether, the scriptures would say. That is not the truth of the scriptures. That is not even the truth of this scripture. It's just the opposite. Very clearly, Peter lays out that they are going to experience, his readers are going to experience persecution. They're going to experience suffering. It is a part of the plan of God. It is a part of their plan in their life. And that we're not to suffer for unrighteousness' sake. Peter makes that very clear. We're not to suffer, as he says in verse 15, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We're not to count self-inflicted wounds as the wounds of Christian suffering. We shouldn't suffer for doing wrong or not doing that which we should do, right? And you understand the difference. It's one thing to miss out on a promotion or lose your job because of your Christian faith. It's altogether different 
to not get that promotion or lose your job because you're not doing the job that you were called to do. Likewise, it's one thing to be seen as strange because of your Christian faith, your Christian testimony. Another thing altogether to be seen as strange because you are strange, right? One is because of Christ, the other is not. We're not to confuse the difference, but as Peter would say, and as even we read earlier from Psalm 34, there are times that we are innocent sufferers, righteous sufferers, suffering for righteousness' sake, and that's what Peter is saying here, notice what he says in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And again in verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. We can experience suffering because of a fallen world or from a fallen body. We can experience the scorn of this world. And what Peter would say to us, what the rest of the scripture would say to us is that is not weakness, but that is strength. And that is not something to be hidden, that is not something to be ashamed of, that is something that we should boldly proclaim and even rejoice in, as we'll see in a moment. This is exactly what Paul did. 2 Corinthians 12, when he asked the Lord three times to have this thorn in the flesh removed, but... God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so what does Paul do? What does he say? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, I will boast. That is the opposite of being ashamed, is it not? But we often don't boast in our weaknesses, do we? We don't boast in our insufficiencies. But if they are giving us opportunity to boast in Christ, in the power and the strength that he provides in the midst of our weaknesses, then that is something that we are to boast in because it puts the glory and praise upon God as it should instead of upon ourselves. For so too... Jesus was despised. So too, Jesus was a man of suffering, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the scripture says. And so we should never apologize for being and looking like Christ and having to follow him in his way, to pick up our cross, because as we suffer, so he suffered. And so as we identify with his suffering, so he too identifies with us in our suffering. And he blesses us and bears us up. And so do not be ashamed of these things. Rather, give it opportunity to witness to Christ and to the strength that he provides. Again, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, Verse 13, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher. And he says, which is why I suffer. And Paul wrote that while in prison. No doubt just days before he was going to be executed. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, but I'm not ashamed. 
For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard until that day. He says, I am not ashamed. I know why I'm here. I know why I'm suffering. And God is using it in my life and for the proclamation of his gospel. And I will trust him, knowing that he will guard and keep until that day. And that brings us perfectly into the seventh point. The trials are the beginning of judgment. Notice verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. You might ask, why is it that Christians are being judged? Well, it's not the judgment of God. Because Christ has already taken that judgment. But it's the judgment and the persecution and the hostility of this world. Which God does allow in the lives of his children. But for the believer. This is the worst of judgments. That we must endure. Have you ever thought about that before? And things that you have gone through, will go through. Are the worst that you will go through. In this life, and especially in all of eternity. And that's not to make light of these things, because they are difficult for sure. But there are some pastors, as we mentioned before, that talk about having our best life now. Well, for the believer, this is the worst life now that we will ever have. The things that we must endure and struggle with is the worst. And as I said, they are difficult and they are painful. And sometimes we use this phrase that they hurt like hell. Which is not true. And we know not which of that which we speak because hell is far, far worse. Yet that pain and that affliction is the worst of hell that we will ever have to experience. Why? Because of Christ. That is true of the believer, but that is not true of the unbeliever. This world, this life, this fallen sinful world is the best that they will ever have. And it will only get far worse from here. And that is why Peter says, and if it begins with us, if judgment begins with us, What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Many of you have looked at horror, as have I, at the devastation of the fires in California. And there's something that stuck in my mind and has remained in the midst of thinking about those fires When it was told to me once that the best place to not be affected by fires is to be where the fire has already been. Where the fire has already burnt because there is nothing more to burn. There is no more fuel for the fire. Likewise, the best place for you to be is where the fire of God's judgment has already fallen. And it has already fallen on Christ at the cross. And so if we are in Christ, then judgment will not fall upon us again. 
And so we do endure in this life the worst. So that one day, by God's grace, we will enjoy the best. And so suffering makes us long for heaven. It long to be in the presence of our Savior. To be rid of these trials. To be rid of this pain. To be rid of this affliction. And that joyful expectation, that longing for heaven is a good thing. Trials help in that. Be prepared for the judgment. Eighth, trials are a reason to rejoice. Hopefully all of you had a blessed Thanksgiving like the Smith family did. I told the teenager group when we met before Thanksgiving that our country does a lot of things wrong. Having a national holiday to give thanks is not one of them. That is a good thing. We should give thanks, especially as the people of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, it says we should give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God. And when our ancestors, the pilgrims that came to this land... They did exactly that. They took a time. They paused to give God thanks. And they weren't giving thanks because all went well that year. In fact, we could say perhaps the exact opposite. That they experienced the worst of trials and afflictions. Half of the original pilgrims did not make it to the first Thanksgiving. Not because they were late or because they were sick or they didn't show up. It's because they were dead. Half of the original pilgrims died. And yet our forefathers knew that it was right to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God. Even in the midst of such grief and loss. And anguish. And Peter says the same here too, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. James, as you remember, says the very same thing in James chapter 1 Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The apostles in Acts chapter 5 talks about how the Sanhedrin beat them, and when they were released, they left the presence of the council rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his namesake. Sanhedrin must have thought something strange about these boys. We took them in to beat them, to persuade them not to continue on in these actions. And yet they leave rejoicing because of Christ. But the apostles knew that being flogged for Christ's sake, that as a result something greater was going to happen. That they were appealing to a greater power, a greater force that was now going to be at work in their life as well as in the world. My daughters have learned when their older brother is picking on them to yell for dad. 
because they know that if they get picked on, that there's going to be someone a lot bigger that's going to pick on him and put him in his place. And I think we can think the same. As we endure trials and tribulations and we bear up under it, we can know that God is going to be at work. He is the one that brings about vengeance, as the scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Perhaps on the persecutors, perhaps on the circumstances, other times not, but he is always at work and is working in us and through us. And that's a guarantee. And so as a result, we can rejoice even in the midst of such trials because we know that God is at work. Well, ninth, trials are a means to glorify God. And, of course, I wouldn't be a Presbyterian if I didn't put this on the list. My pastor license would no doubt be revoked. But this is not only true all the time, but it's true in this passage as well. Notice what Peter says in verse 16. He says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We are to glorify God even in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our affliction. Again, as we near the end, perhaps you are nearing the end of your Bible reading plan and perhaps getting to the book of Revelation. I always thought it interesting that Revelation is a book of worship. It's a book of the vision of God upon his throne and the heavenly worship that is ongoing, the singing and song and doxology. You need to remember that John wrote that while on the island of Patmos, not because he was on vacation, but because he was exiled as a prisoner because of his faith. And yet that is the place that he had that vision. And do you think as he had that vision, he had any kind of fear or concern of the Roman Empire that exiled him to that island. Uh, The Roman Empire seemed pretty small, pretty petty, in the light of myriads and myriads of angels, an innumerable host praising the God of heaven and earth, the King of kings that is upon his throne. Oh, for us to have that vision continually in all of life's circumstances, no matter what we are going through, because in the light of that, all things look quite small, quite trivial. One of my wife's favorite Christian music artists, one that I've grown to appreciate, has a song It's a song about marriage, but it's a song about life in general. And it's called Dancing in the Minefields. And I love that picture, that in the midst of the minefields, you wouldn't think that would be a wonderful place to dance. But the song talks about not having that concern or cares, but rather continuing to dance. And the song has this few lines that says this because we bear the light of the son of man there's nothing else to fear we walk in the shadow land until the shadows disappear 
Because he promised not to leave us. And his promises are true. So in the face of this chaos, I will dance with you. That's the picture I think we are to have. That we are to continue to glorify God. Even dance in the minefields. Even in the face of chaos. Until those shadows would disappear. Well, finally, tenth, trials are an opportunity to entrust your life to God. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We end where we begin. If all trials are from the hands of a loving God, will we trust him? Will we trust him even in this, when the road is dark and the future is uncertain, when we face the worst of life or even the darkest hour, will we continue to believe that we belong to him body and soul because he is our faithful Savior who has never left us, who has never forsaken us, provided for us in all of our needs? Will he not see us through this As well, will his rod and staff cease to comfort us as we walk through this valley? Of course not. God is faithful. We can entrust our lives to such a faithful God as this passage tells us to do. To commit ourselves to him fully because God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. Let me close with this. Probably many of you have heard of the pastor, Andrew Brunson, who was just recently released from a Turkish prison. And Pastor Brunson was an American citizen. In fact, he was a Presbyterian pastor. And I recently read an article, an interview with him, And it was interesting to see this time of imprisonment and the things that he learned and went through. And he says very honestly that it took two years. The Lord specifically knew the right amount of time for him to be in prison. He says that in the first year, he admits that he was miserable. That he did not rejoice. In fact, he was completely broken. Broken. And he says, if the Lord would have released me in year one, I would not have been ready. He said, I had been lying on the floor, curled up in the fetal position with PTSD. But he says, the second year, the Lord started to rebuild him. And what helped during that time is that he began to recite scripture and specifically the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. You remember those blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. And specifically, Matthew 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad because of persecution. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For just as they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he said that while he would recite this, 
He learned to do a practice that he was very uncomfortable with, and that was to dance, perhaps because he was Presbyterian. (laughs) But he learned that pattern from another imprisoned pastor from years before. That that pastor, when he was in prison, would recite scripture and he would dance in his prison cell. So Pastor Brunson began to do that. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. And he would dance in his cell. He says, even if I was not rejoicing on the inside, I did it as an act of obedience. And the Lord used it, as he said, to build him back up. To give him a vision beyond the walls of his cell. Now, we may never endure such persecution, such tribulation as that. We may never be in literal prison walls, and I hope not. But yet, our suffering can feel like we are imprisoned, can it not? And I hope that through this passage and through these truths, we see a greater vision of what God is doing in our lives and through the lives of others. And I know not all that you've gone through or are going through or will go through. But the point is not that I know, but that God knows. And He does. And He remembers that we are but jars of clay. And yet He sustains us, He keeps us, He upholds us. And therefore we can say with the Apostle Paul that we are afflicted but not crushed. We are perplexed but not despairing. We are forsaken, persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Because God is indeed at work. And so be of good cheer. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. And in that we can rejoice and perhaps even dance. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are very uncomfortable even with this subject matter, let alone some of these truths. Lord, we like to pity, we like to wallow in our sadness and in our suffering. Try to convince ourselves that we have it so much worse than anyone else. Yet, Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater and more glorious vision of that which you have called to do in us and through us, through the means of suffering, through the means of affliction. And Lord, we pray that you would use it to strip away all that should not be there, to strip away all that does not look like Christ, so that we may be formed into his image and therefore give you greater praise and glory. But Lord, we ask that you would uphold us as we know you will, that you would sustain us and give us your spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the truthfulness of it. May we apply it to our hearts and our minds, we pray. Amen.